This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Cartographers, a podcast to help Christian leaders map a changing cultural landscape in the 21st century. Join hosts Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales, pastor and PhD. If you feel like the world has changed beneath your feet and you're struggling to figure out which way is up, this podcast is for you. Welcome back to the Cartographers podcast. We're here with Glenn Packiam. He is the lead pastor of Rock Harbor in Costa Mesa, California. He earned his doctorate in theology and ministry from Durham University in the UK, and he has co-written a book called The Intentional Year, Simple Rhythms for Finding Freedom, Peace, and Purpose with his wife, Holly Packiam. And we're really excited to have this conversation with you, Glenn, Bryce and I, we are just a few hours north of you, and we have four kids as well. So we understand this the challenge of personal formation, ministry context, busy households, and we're excited to dig in today. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Bryce. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Glenn. So yeah, looking forward to talking with you about uh, kind of formation in practice. Um, so Ashley and I have led uh, lots of people through Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course. And I get the sense that uh, you're familiar with, with uh, Pete's material and uh we love scazzaro's stuff it's really really good yeah yeah so i I mean there's a lot out there to help us uh think about formation as followers of jesus Uh, given you wrote a previous book the resilient pastor and now you and holly have written this book together uh where do you see the breakdown of actual growth and in spiritual fruit in the american church yeah, thanks for that. And thanks for referencing The Resilient Pastor. What I loved about that project is I got to collaborate with Barna. And so I'm, I was interacting with some data, you know, some research work that they uh, had done prior to the book. And then we did some new work together for that Resilient Pastor project, uh, that book. And there's a chapter in that book specifically about formation. And one of the things that emerged as I was working on on that book was that so much of our focus on discipleship efforts in the American church or the evangelical church here in America tends to be individual and internal. And what I mean by that is it's it's one-on-one Bible studies, it's personal devotional practices, and that there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we know that that life with God, life with Jesus is deeply personal, you know, but it's never private and it's never supposed to just stay as sort of this Jesus in me. And so by by putting all of our emphasis, we've almost overly weighted uh, the emphasis on the individual. I think uh, I think that's hurt our formation uh, efforts as a church uh, over time. And then when I say internal, what I mean by that is it's so much about our inward life with God. And so sort of this, this sense of an experience of God, prayer life with God. And again, of course, I mean, that's that's what we want. That's what we're invited into. What a beautiful mystery to be in a relationship with the triune God. Uh, and yet, 
Formation is meant to also be communal and um, external. It, it's meant to push us outward. Uh, there's there's not supposed to be this hard line between uh, formation and mission, but we sometimes treat it like these are a la carte kind of things. And formation is this, yeah, you know, you have to do this. And then mission is like bonus extra credit if you have time, you know. Yeah, that is really good. You know, and and I think that, you know, it, it's kind of like you're only working out like one muscle at the gym, right? And you're going to become very lopsided. And, and so this sense of maybe we need to lean into external and communal forms of formation uh, together to kind of get ourselves healthy again. You know, and as, as we think about that, one thing I'm reminded about is Bryce, whenever he's leading some of these sorts of formational discussions, talks a lot about Dallas Willard, of course, but, you know, particularly the idea that, that we, we begin with a vision, we then move to intention, right? And then we move towards methodology. And he often shares, and you can share more if you want, Bryce, but, you know, about this intention, this missing piece of intention. Um, and I was struck with that thinking about the name of this book is The Intentional Year. So how do you see your book particularly, or just some of these sorts of rhythms and practices, filling in that gap between the vision and the methodology and that you've just seen in your years of ministry? Well, what's interesting is, you know, maybe kind of funny, but I, I had only, I'd heard about the vision intention means thing from Willard after we had written the book. And I, I wish we had heard it before and kind of, you know, we could have we could have interacted with that more because, of course, Willard is such a was such a genius on, on all of this stuff. But I think for us, it was it was much more uh, um, kind of almost practical where both Holly and I felt like, wow, it's so easy to live life on cruise control. And the way she's sometimes described it is like it's just easy to go through life reacting and responding and we, we do sometimes make that distinction even between reactivity and responding and, hey, let's respond and not right. That's true. But there's actually even another distinction, which is uh, proactively, like, like choosing choosing where you want to head and, and, and determining a direction. So, you know, we've been married a little over 21 years now at this point, 21 and a half years. We have four kids. We, we began doing these retreats as a couple about 12 years ago or so. So right in the thick of, of kind of our, you know, ha having babies kind of phase of, of life, you know, and and I think so, someone had suggested like, you guys need to go make time. And so initially it was simply like, oh, my gosh, yeah, just catch your breath. We're super exhausted. Can somebody else take care of these toddlers or, you know, um, and then over time we realized, OK, actually, now that we have this time away, let's use it so that we can set a trajectory or a course um, for, for the year. And so the idea of being intentional is meant to be as opposed to um, being living in your default settings or just kind of being in cruise control or uh, staying in the ruts that you're already in. And it's not that you never fail or fall short or drift. Of course, you're going to drift. You know, here we are, you know, all of us in, in California here, we look out at the ocean, we look at boats that are, uh, you know, uh, the other day we, we took um, the Catalina flyer over to Catalina Island, you know, found a Groupon deal on it or something, you know, and it's like you you aim towards something and maybe waves will kind of make you drift a little bit, at least you, you are aiming in that direction. And I think that's how it is in life. It's not that we're going to be rigid about our goals or anything like that. We don't want to be, you know, neither Holly nor I are hyper disciplined people. But we also don't want to live uh, in a in a sort of responsive, reactive, default way. 
I don't know. I mean, you you have enough degrees and have written enough books. You've got to have some measure of discipline. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, question that. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 um, okay, I, I want to ask you this because you're a pastor, and I, I love this vision. You said this the way Willard says it. I uh, vision, intention, means is the language Willard uses. I, I I've t- I've talked about methodology because I feel like people pick up quicker on what that means. But um, I, I feel like churches we can we understand vision. You know, we can preach sermons and say, "Hey, this is you know this is who Jesus is, and this is what He's inviting us into," and paint this beautiful picture. And then we can we can do the means or the methodology part where we're like, "Sign up for this." class or, you know, join this group, or we're going to do this project on Saturday. Um, this is what you do. How do you think about communicating the intention piece there? I, I feel like I often find myself saying like, I wish I could do intention for people, but, um, you know, if it, it's one thing to say, like, I want to lose 10 pounds, I know how to do that. I mean, it's eat less calories. Right. But it's like, that part of like, do I really want to do the eating less calories part? That's a bit too close to but, home for me, Bryce. Yeah, that, <laughs> not uh, hypothetical. Not a hypothetical. Yeah, right. No, you know, it's it, it's it's really great, and I, I I think this is why we we have you know we're using the language of practice and rhythm. Um, as opposed to just the goal. So, and, and there's several people that have done work on this, you know, but when you have goals that are driven, or, or I should say this, when you adopt a practice that is driven by a goal, like I'm going to work out until I lose 10 pounds. Well, once you hit that goal, there goes the practice. Or, you know, we tell a story in the book of Holly years ago, uh, training for a half marathon. She, and she ran the one up in San Francisco, you know, across the Golden Gate Bridge. It's great. After that, you know, there were other ways of working out, but but running wasn't one of them, you know, and and that's because you 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 gain habits that are shaped by a goal. Once you hit that goal, or you don't hit that goal, it, it goes away. Think of the classic Christian one: I'm going to read the Bible in one year. That's a noble goal. But what if you start falling behind or somewhere around Leviticus, as we all do, you know? <laughs> and then what? Then what happens? Then you give up on that goal, and so. What what we've tried to do is, okay, if vision is about the kind of flourishing, fruitful life that you want to have, then intention is about the practices that push you in that direction. And so, so it's really more about identity than it is um, um, about goals or achievement. Or another way to say it, it's fruitfulness, not productivity. Very In the first chapter of the intentional year, we say productivity is about what you're doing. Fruitfulness is about who you're becoming. And it's so easy to even Christianize productivity. Well, I want to serve more. I want to read more. I want to pray more. Oh, okay, 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 great. But if you can take the time to slow down and listen to what the Holy Spirit might be trying to do in your life in this season, and it's going to be different for everybody in different seasons, then you can say, Lord, what's the fruit you're trying to cultivate in my life? And then how can I come alongside you in that cultivation. Yeah. So you hit another one of my like uh, favorite words, which is the fruitfulness. Uh, and and I, I guess I'm curious if you could maybe um, help us just even with like a d- defining what we're talking about when we're talking about formation, um, because it, it seems like um, we're living, it, it feels like we're living through a time of massive change. Um, and, and one of those changes, I think there's a, there's a ton of change happening all at the same time, but there, there's something changing in the, 
in the church in the Christian church in the West. Um, and I think part of it is, um, maybe a, a realization that there has been this focus on like productivity and, and goals and metrics and the, the language that Jesus uses, um, is, is very agrarian language. It's, um, and, and I remember uh, even listening to like sermons as a teenager and that was always kind of explained, well, he lived in an agrarian society. And now I'm like, I'm not sure that that's the reason that, you know, when he talks in, um, the sermon on the Mount, the healthy trees bear healthy fruits, unhealthy trees bear unhealthy fruit. So you will know them by their fruit. Um, how does all of that kind of play into how, how you think about what we're talking about when we're talking about formation? Well, I'm with you in the in believing that the agrarian metaphors are not just because that's the context he knew. I, I think that there's some of that that's probably true. Um, but I think if he is the one through whom all things were made, <laughs> and then he's using metaphors that actually work with creation. I mean, this, this the, the, the way creation uh, produces growth at its best. I mean, of course, there's some warps, warped parts of creation, but uh, it's it's slow and it's methodical and it requires cultivation. So uh, one of the things that really helped us in thinking this through, Holly's dad is a farmer. He just recently retired from farming after, I don't know, 50 years, I think, in Iowa. Uh, and he raised all kinds of crops, you know, from, um, you know, corn to alfalfa to beans. Uh, but he also had beef cattle. And so I've I've learned so much over the years of my conversations with him because he's almost like a like our personal Wendell Berry type of figure, you know, like he's he's a poet farmer and he's very stubborn because the in a good way, like like there are a lot of people who have started renting the land around them who are agro business people. And I'm not knocking that business model, but for him, it just seems like such a such a strange thing because these guys spend a million dollars or whatever on a GPS tractor that drives itself and and a combine, whatever, that drives itself because of you plug coordinates and it, it works the field. And he calls them ghost farmers because he's like, we don't ever see them. We don't know their connection to the community. We don't know their connection to the land. We just know that they're here to get what they need and get out. And I think it's such a powerful rebuke. That metaphor is a powerful rebuke to how we think about spiritual formation. What we really want to be in the Christian life is we want to be ghost farmers. We want someone else to do, like, hey, pastor, just punch in the GPS coordinates, make my marriage better, make me a better parent. Make, can you make my kids like amazing? I just want, like, put the right GPS coordinates into the youth ministry and, the, you know, like, just do that. And then, boom, it'll go. And what I'm constantly trying to say to people as a pastor is, but what about your connection to the soil of your own life? What about your cultivation of this work? Because Genesis 1, let us make them in our image. And then he says, be fruitful. So that fruitfulness is a Genesis call. Like it's, it's the part of being an image bearer is to be a person who is supposed to cultivate fruitfulness from the world and not just the world, but even in our own life. So you apply that to spiritual formation. The fruit of the spirit undoubtedly 100% is the work of the Holy Spirit and the great mystery of it and the Holy Spirit's work in us somehow involves our participation in that cultivation. It's that, it's that Willard quote, the other Willard quote, you know, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, you know? So no, we're not trying to earn God's grace, but God's grace enables us to make the effort to be connected to the soil of our own lives and to cultivate it purposefully and intentionally. 
Thank you. Yeah. I think there's a lot, you know, in, in your life and ministry together and in the book, particularly, you know, that's pushing back against some of these, um, kind of Western individualistic, you know, plug and play sort of views of, of life in Christ. And I like particularly how you talk about grace as a gift and this difference between Eastern and Western cultures um, that we kind of tend to think in Western societies of, of gifts like no strings attached. It's just a free gift. You're good. Um, but that in Eastern societies, so in the society in which the Bible is written, that actually gifts come with strings attached, that they are reciprocal. And I think that really helps us maybe unpack a little bit about what you were just saying about, you know, it's not opposed to earning, but, um, or rather, sorry, it, it is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. So, um, help us understand, you know, as Westerners who are just so embedded in this idea of, well, how do I reconcile work or intention um, in my personal spiritual life, not falling into legalism on a ditch on one side of the road, but at the same time, accept the grace that is free and, and do something. What, how do we, how do we hold these things in tension? How do we grow into maybe a more, a thicker sort of forms of discipleship? Yes. Yes. So I, thanks for referencing that Eastern and Western thing. I, I learned so much reading John Barclay's book, Paul and the Gift, uh, where he dives into ancient gift-giving forms, but also references how that is how it is in in many Eastern and and other cultures in the global South. And I I'm a first-generation immigrant. I grew up in Malaysia. It's where I'm from. I just had to think about all I had to do was stop and think about how gift-giving was in Asia, you know. And it's like right, right, right. It's totally, yeah. and it's it, you know there is a version of it that can feel manipulative. Like I gave you this. Now what are you going to do for me? You know. And this is also why in some Asian contexts. A bribe is not a bribe. It's like it's like how business gets done, you know. So obviously, there's like squirrely ways of this, but the the healthy version of it is to say a gift is meant to solidify the bonds of connection, the bonds of relationship. A gift. Think about that verse, and I think it's Jeremiah where he says, "I've drawn you with cords of loving kindness," or even the image of covenant being a binding together, like I'm binding myself to you, you know. Those are helpful images to say, not not maybe the strings attached is, is not helpful, but to say, actually, grace is the ultimate string. It's the cords of loving kindness that are meant to bind us to God. So why did why did the, the Father send the Son? Why did the Son lay down his own life? Why have we been given the gift of the Spirit, all of the gifts of God given for the people of God? It's given to make us children of God. It's to make us the people of God. It's to bind us to God himself. So when we think of it that way, we don't have this transactional view of grace that says, hey, thanks, God, for that. I'll, I'll receive it with faith, and then I'll see you later in heaven, you know, and any of this discipleship stuff, again, is another kind of extra credit thing, you know. Instead, we see, it, we see grace relationally. And that it's, it's, it is how the New Testament talks. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, not that we should have our sins cleansed and our passports stamped for heaven. Thanks for that transaction. You know, it's that there is now a new relationship that has been created. So when you when you when we see it that way, then all of a sudden spiritual formation is growing up. But that family metaphor, that relational metaphor continues. It's growing up to be like our father, growing up to be like members of this family that we've already been been um, forged into. And so you're you're absolutely right, Ashley. Like a view of grace is so fundamental to anything that we're, we we are going to do with spiritual formation. 
I think this is really helpful to that just opens up the conversation, though, I think, um, along some of these lines. Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. I'm curious, just kind of following up on that, um, Glenn, I had a conversation with someone recently who who was saying, um, I'm kind of concerned about emphasizing discipleship because um, grace, if we're really talking about grace, it should sound like antinomianism. And I, to be honest, I was a little bit like, I don't know how to respond to this because I understand partially what you're saying that, that like grace should sound like such Scandalous. good news yeah. that you're like, are you kidding me? Uh, God, God loves us. Uh, this thoroughly, this lavishly, this completely. And yet to say, therefore, don't tell me that there's anything I should do. <laughs> it just feels like such a, such a disconnect. I mean, how, how would you kind of, how would you respond to a question like that? Well, everything we know about grace, essentially, we learn from the Apostle Paul. And you couldn't pick up one of Paul's letters that doesn't connect the love and grace of God with the power of the Holy Spirit for a new way of living. You know, um, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, it's, it's like such our favorite passages about what, what grace does. And it goes wrong. I mean, even in Ephesians, you know, too, where he's saying it's by grace that we've been saved, not by works so that we can't boast. And then he says, for the good works that God prepared for us ahead, you know, before the, uh, from all eternity. So there's, it's already there. And then how does he open Ephesians 4? He says, therefore, as dearly loved children of God, walk worthy of your calling. So Paul does not disconnect it. And, and, and we should, if we're, if we're tempted to disconnect it, uh, maybe it is us who don't have, to use your phrase, Ashley, a thick understanding of grace. Maybe we have a uh, a simplistic one. And this is why I think John Barclay has been so hel- helpful, because he's a New Testament scholar in the re- Reformed tradition, very much in the Luther tradition even. And and yet he's trying to, he's trying to almost um, transcend the old dichotomies, if you will, and, and to say, if we read through this prism of gift language and how gifts are always relationally binding, they forge and reinforce new, they forge new relationships or reinforce relationships. 
So we, we have the, you know, we talked about the gift of, of grace that shows up in Jesus, but what about the gift of grace that shows up in the Holy Spirit? And that's the other part of Paul's theology that oftentimes gets, gets, um, missed. And so I, I'm just going to pick on a phrase here. You, you know, sometimes people say the law says do, and the gospel says done. Well, I want to quibble with that and say that that's not all the gospel says, uh, because the gospel says, yes, Jesus did it. And by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ, now we begin to live into that too, you know? And, and so if, if we are functional, um, this is going to sound really nerdy, but if we are functional binetarians, where it's really the father and the son, if we're functional binetarians, then I understand that law versus gospel hard line and anything that sounds like works or ethics or discipleship is like, ah, oh, legalism. But if we are functional Trinitarians, then we have to say, well, what, what about the Holy Spirit? What about the gift of God, the grace of God as evidenced by the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit given for? Um, is it just first to have goosebumps? I come from a charismatic background. <laughs> Certainly not. You know, uh, Is it just for warm and fuzzies? No. Why is the Holy Spirit given? To reveal Jesus and to make us more like Jesus. It is the Spirit who forms us into the image of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. That's great. So let's maybe um, transition a bit and, and kind of talk, uh, let's talk practicalities here. Uh, so I grew up as a kid in the sort of the evangelical mega church subculture and then in the nineties. And in that context, you know, Bible reading plans and, and kind of, you know, we've talked a bit about this, like my, my Bible reading plan died in Leviticus, you know, many times. Well, I mean, I barely got past Exodus 20, if I'm honest, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, many times, but that's formed how a lot of how we were taught to grow in Christ likeness. I mean, you talked about the kind of, um, a dichotomy between the kind of individual uh, and internal, but one of the other one of the other maybe false dichotomies we have here is um, maybe that's not the word I want to say. Actually, we, we talked about like information, right? Where information was kind of like communicating information uh, was was a substitute for transformation. And so, throughout your book, you talk about um, practices in in five spheres. You talk about prayer and rest and renewal and relationship and work uh, and kind of coming together to, to form what some people would call a rule of life. Could you maybe just like kind of walk us through one of those areas, thinking about how that moves through vision, intention, methodology in, in your kind of own life? Yeah, sure. So that is the, the the meat of the book is taking an inventory of those five spheres of your life. There are two kind of prelude steps, one that helps you use the prayer of examine essentially to look back on a longer season, sometimes a whole year. Uh, and then there's the, the other prelude or, or preparatory step is is listening and discerning uh, what season you're in. So just briefly going back to that farming metaphor, my father-in-law has taught me from, you know, just conversations with him, you have to do the right work in the right season. You know, if you, you, you try to plant in the winter, you're, you're stupid. That's not what you're doing, you know? So, so, but when do you cut your firewood? You don't cut your firewood in the winter. You got to do that in the summer. And so, you know, there's work that fits each season. And so in a similar way, I don't want to, I don't want anyone to get the impression that, that spiritual formation is one size fits all. You know, take two of these and call me in the morning and, you know, you're going to be better for it. I don't know. Um, some people might be in a season where there's a, there's a big change or they, they've just had a baby or they've just, you know, lost their job. 
those are the that's why it's so important to, to even before taking inventory of these five spheres to say lord what season am i in and what are you asking of me in this season you know there's always a limitation in every season or limitations and there's invitations in every season and I, uh, invitations from the Lord. And so I think I think that's uh, really important to pay attention. Okay, those five spheres, prayer, uh, rest, renewal, relationships, and work. Um, there is one, uh, there's probably a few, but there's at least one kind of super practice, if you will, that actually can speak to all five of those areas. And that's the practice of Sabbath. Um, because Sabbath can be a space to pray. Um, Sabbath can be a, a uh, obviously it's rest. Um, Sabbath can be a time for renewal, play. In other words, it can be a time to play. Um, Sabbath can be the joy of relationships and Sabbath can be the ceasing from work. So Sabbath is one of those meta practices that actually speaks to all five of those spheres of your life. But if I were to pick one of them and to say, you know, you mentioned the Bible reading thing, um, Bryce, I, um, I, I have, I'm, um, I much prefer a slower method of Bible reading than the read it in one year. I'm a big fan of meta narratives. I think that's great. I'm grateful for tools like the Bible project that help us see the, you know, the, the forest for the trees, but personally, devotionally, my two favorite ways to engage with scripture are, um, to work through an entire book of the Bible slowly, uh, no more than a chapter at a time and to read it and read it again and then journal it. It's like a Lectio Divina, but I didn't know that that's what it was called when I started doing that younger, you know? Um, and then, and then the other one would be to pray the Psalms. My prayer life got remarkably more consistent when I just started praying one or two Psalms a day and just worked through the book of Psalms. Um, and I realized that again, having grown up in sort of this charismatic kind of setting, which I, I very much embraced the life of the spirit and the work of the spirit and all of that. But I had also reali realized that I had too much of a value on the spontaneous and kind of confused the spontaneous for the spiritual, you know, and, and when you're all only trying to pray when it comes straight from your heart and when you're feeling it, uh, I mean, that's, that's like people in a marriage saying we only go on dates when we feel super in love, you know, like, well, I mean, it might be work the other way around, you know? Uh, so I, I think praying the Psalms has been so helpful because, and I, my, my approach to praying the Psalms is not novel. It's very much like how you would uh, use a greeting card from the store. You know, you buy a greeting card that has words that you like, but then you add a few lines of your own and then you give it to your friend or your family member or whatever. The Psalms are like that. You, you, you start reading the words and then when a phrase just hits you, just stop and say, Lord, I'm going to pray for someone right now who's, you name the person who, who feels surrounded by their enemies. Maybe their enemies are cancer or, you know, this chemo treatment or whatever, and they feel surrounded on every side. And you start praying and the Psalms actually push you outward. So it's not just internal. It pushes you outward, external. You can't but read if one or two Psalms before you start realizing, gosh, I should pray for war in the world. And I should pray for Ukraine. And I should pray for, you know, and, and, and I think the Psalms are a great way of not just doing what's in our heart, saying what's in our heart, which is, all, again, that's always going to be individual and internal, but the song will push us outward like that. Thank you for that. And I was going to follow up and ask in a, in a similar vein. So we're like mind melding. It's good. Um, about like, you know, not only what does that look like in an individual practice, but, you know, what is your practice of Sabbath or your practice of prayer and scripture meditation look like 
you know, involving your family or your church community um, to push back against some of that individualistic tendency? You know, one of my, the, one of the most powerful things we ever did as this is the church in Colorado that I was leading new life downtown. And we kind of backed into it, didn't know what we were doing, but it ended people ended up saying this was the singular, most powerful and connecting experience that I've had at this congregation was praying the Psalms via um, our Facebook group, a closed Facebook group during COVID. So, so we, we, we were like, how do we keep connected? We didn't want to just broadcast a service or whatever, you know? So we have a close, we had a closed Facebook group for all the members of the congregation. You know, you had to be, you had to be allowed into the group and every weekday morning, someone from the team would, go, you know, go live and everyone else wouldn't have to have cameras. Or you, they wouldn't have cameras on. They would just, but they would join in the comments and we would just pray a psalm out loud, one or two, sometimes three psalms, however many you could get through in 20 minutes or so. And we'd do exactly what I said. We'd read a few lines and then stop and say, yes, Lord, we do pray that you would do this and do this, you know, and then people, and we'd say, you know, add stuff in the comments. And so people would add in the comments, oh yes, I'm, I'm praying this right now for my kid or for my this or that. And so then the the person who's, who's leading it could read the comments and say, oh God, thank you for Susie. Yeah, we do pray that over her son. And, you know, um, it's 20 minutes every day and we did it. It lasted, I think it took us four months to get through all the Psalms, you know, and it was just amazing. I, it makes me want to do that again. Of course, it was a unique situation where everyone was looking for um, a community. But that's that's one example I can think of that was really, really powerful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. You know, and as we, if we think about kind of our own personal spiritual practices and how we can involve others that, you know, that leads us to one of your other spheres um, to talk about work particularly. And I love how you kind of frame that to talk about our work being for God's glory and for the good of the world as well, which just brings us back to Abraham's call. We've talked, Bryce and I, we chat a lot about what does it look like to not, you know, to be welcomed into relationship with Jesus, but for the good of the nations, right? And not just our own, yeah, like you were saying, goosebumps. You know, so as we think about our work lives, um, we have lots of leaders who listen to the podcast, whether they're leaders in their own home or leading in churches like you um, or workplaces. So what might be as they think about, okay, I love, you know, I can implement maybe praying with someone, um, reading through the Psalms, I can implement a Sabbath practice, but they might have a big disconnect between their work lives and um, what does it look like to live an intentional discipleship to Jesus? Um, what's maybe a, a question that they could carry with them through their day or a practice or something to put on their calendar that can help them see their occupation and vocation, you know, as you were saying, both for God's glory and for the world's good? How can they frame that? Yeah, that's so good, Ashley. And I I honestly, this is a question I ask business people all the time. Um because I, I have ideas theologically and, and from those scriptures, but you know, these are people that they're living it, you know, and I'll say, man, what helps you when you're prepping for that board meeting or this appointment or that sales call? And so I feel like I'm learning this from our church and from people in our congregation as much as anything. But some of the things I've, I've heard over the years are it, it really helps me to, to think about what I'm going to do in drive time, you know, so when I'm on the way to meetings and some people be like, oh, it's worship music that just helps kind of center me. Um, other people I know, they'll just take 30 seconds before opening the door into that, that staff meeting and just say, 
Jesus, you know, be with me, go with me into this, you know? Um, so there, you know, you, you guys are familiar with this and I'm sure your leader, your listeners are too, but there's this, this practice sometimes called a breath prayer, you know, where you're able to, with your breathing, pray, um, you, you know, uh, you know, Abba, I am yours or, you know, thank you, Jesus, even, you know, so, so I think that's a way to, to really, um, engage it real time in the workday because breath prayers are not long. It's a, you know, 15, 30 seconds, whatever. The other piece of it that, that I've heard from people that they have found really helpful is a, is a brief daily examine. Um, and there's so many great tools for it. One of my favorites is the Lectio 365 app, um, from our friends, you know, Pete Craig and the 24 seven guys over in the UK. But, uh, the evening examine, they have a morning and an evening one. The morning one is more like a Lectio, like a read scripture repeatedly. And then the evening one is review your day. Uh, where did you give love today? Where did you fail to give love? You know, uh, where, where, where did you experience God's presence? What can you thank God for? What, what do you need to repent of? And I just think even reviewing, replaying our work day as a sacred act of worship, that's Romans 12. That's offering our entire lives, our bodies as living sacrifice to the Lord. And I, it's, it's not so much about being religious with it or, or, you know, like, um, legalistic about it, but, but with a spirit of worship to say, God, I, my work needs to be part of my worship. And that's the, that's the thing that is, is, is often missed work or, or the same word for worshiper and servant in Hebrew is that, is that, uh, is it's the same word. So our service for God or our service for others is also our worship to God. And so to be able to even think about that, that um, that Obed or that Avad, that, that act of service and act of worship, they're meant to be one and the same. So everything that is for the good of the world, I would say is also going to be for the glory of God. So, so there's a, there's an intimate connection there between those two, those two things. And so just even being aware of that helps us to bring that mindset into our work day. Uh, Glenn, this has been such a rich conversation. I, I want to ask you uh, kind of one final question here as we close, but uh, somewhat selfishly, almost Ashley and I have kind of, um, I feel like gotten to this point in life where God has given us a lot of opportunities to do some things together. And so we're kind of starting this new podcast together. Uh, we're doing some other things together. This is the first book I think that you have, you and Holly wrote together. And so talk to us a little bit about like what is gained in, in your partnership together and working on that, in that project together. It, it's, it was super fun and it's definitely like, uh, the 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 teasing moment between us is she's actually said for years that we should write this down um, because like I said you know we we began doing a retreat like this about twelve years ago or so and then it began twice it, was, it switched over to do it twice a year because we needed to recalibrate with school startup and all that and we would post about it every once in a while share about it and people would always comment and say do you have a worksheet or do you have a PDF or something we can use and I always thought ah, it's fine it's not you know. And there, there's a friend who's an editor who really, really was encouraging Holly um, to write, and she was kind of reluctant, but she said, "I'll do this if you know if if you'll partner with me on it." And so, just kind of learning even our our strengths, um, how we work best, and 
and uh, and allowing for that. And that, it's it's been great. I mean, it's been fun. She hasn't really helped me on this the promotional side of things. You know? <laughs> I'm not a little about that. Tell her uh, next no. time she can come on our podcast. It'll be <laughs> That's fun. right. That's right. No, but it, it's been sweet, and it's been and it's been fun, and it, and the, the times that we get to teach on it together, I think it's really great because. She brings a counseling background. She's got her master's in counseling. And so she's really great even in the, the live spaces of leading some of the reflection. She's much better at staying in the moment than I am. So I'll bring a lot of, you know, Bryce, you said information. Like that would be my pitfall. I'll be like, I'll bring all the information, you know. <laughs> and, and, and then she'll bring the space and the presence to actually like uh, let people allow it to go deep. That's so helpful. Yeah, you know, it's it's almost as if God actually makes married people one, right? You know. <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, thank you, Glenn, for being with us, and thank you for you and Holly and your good work and helping us just really connect some dots between what does life in Christ look like and how we might be moving forward in a grace-filled way. We so appreciate your your ministry and your time. Same. Love the conversation, guys. Thank you so much. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It's edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of the Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.